side are you on, which was influenced heavily by our current culture and the things we've been experiencing maybe as individuals and as a church and the stresses that puts on our, um, on our faith and following Jesus in times like today, days like today. And I, while I was speaking, I had mentioned a couple weeks ago that I had, this, had prepared a message that I had not uh, shared. I just kind of set it aside and thought, ah, probably this is probably too much to go through, too much, just too much in general, too intense, maybe too much content, too many things. I just set it aside, and that happens from time to time. Um, but while I was speaking last week, I thought, man, I might need to share that next week, the, the one that I didn't share, you know. It's almost like a part two to this message. And right afterwards, someone in the church came up to me and said, hey, while you're preaching, I was thinking these verses. And I was like, oh, man, that's the exact same thing. So I took it as a confirmation from the Lord. They wanted me to share it. It's a little bit of a different message I'll explain as we go. Um, so this is actually a part two. Which side are you on part two? Or another title of Here is the Man. And then if you're familiar, this, this, what we're going to be looking at is the the chapters, the entire the chapters of John 18 and 19, which depicts Jesus' arrest all the way up to his sentencing of being crucified. And in the middle of that, there's a point where Pontius Pilate says, here's the man, referring to Jesus. And we're going to be using this text as a tool to see what Jesus is like, especially in an intense environment, an intense culture. So we're continuing the theme of, you know, the world tends to demand us to be picking sides, and we want to know what side God is on and how we should interact with that. And so, you know, where is Jesus and all of this is going on? And, you know, after what we said last week about Joshua standing there and asking, you know, are you for us or for our enemies? And Jesus is like, no, <laughs> you can be with me, though, if you want. Because there are going to be times when we have to take sides, you know. But it's us taking sides with God, not him taking sides with us, which is a very different thing. And the kind of question of, you know, if you remember the 90s bracelets, the what would Jesus do is a really good question here. You know, when we're encountering something, what would Jesus do here? You know, and the way we know that is by looking at his word. And so we find ourselves in a situation where kind of like, in order for this whole thing to make sense, I've got to give you kind of a nutshell gospel, which is that God created this world. He made creation. It was good. It was right. He added humans, gave us freedom, and we messed it up. And he needed to fix it. And so he sent Jesus. God came as a man, Jesus, to fix it, to fix both our sentence of death and sin, our curse under sin and death, um, and to reestablish um, our connection with God. And he did this himself. So the things that we had done wrong, he took upon himself, and he gives us the freedom that comes from not being under the curse of sin and death, and also reconnection with God, which we had been disconnected from. And so God himself and Jesus fixes all of this. And he's doing so in the main part. Like, that's what he's doing when we're going to be reading these verses. So you've got to have that in your mind. So I'll read this quote. This is Fleming Rutledge. She's a preaching theologian we've mentioned before. She says, From beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. That we had messed things up so bad that God himself had to fix it. Okay? And then here's another quote from her. It's like, With all due respect to the religions of the world, there is no other story like the Christian story. The God who thunders, the God who persecutes and condemns, the God who wreaks vengeance 
Yes, we know this God from the caricatures. We know this God from the Old Testament or from the old paintings. We know this God from hearing continual references to the Old Testament God that's in quotation marks. But this is not who God is. The Old Testament God is the one who has come down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh and of his own free will and decision has come under his own judgment in order to deliver us from the everlasting condemnation and bring us into eternal life. He has not required human sacrifice. He has himself become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us. He was himself turned over and forsaken. This is what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, and this is Isaiah. Surely he was born he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him the ch- was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. So we're looking at, and there's a lot to just read there, but we're looking at what would Jesus do? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And we're in a complicated time where the church in America, the church in the world, and the, has interwoven with politics in weird ways. We've talked about that in the past, for the last several months. Um, is it dangerous? That doesn't mean it. Obviously, as Christian people, we should have political views. Obviously, we should act on those and on that sort of thing. But when we become interwoven and out of place, it gets really weird really fast. Too many different ways to discuss right now. And so you start to say, well, what does Jesus do in light of that? And how does Jesus interact with that? And what kind of victory is Jesus giving? And what does that victory look like in our lives now? Because a lot of us, especially in America, because first off, I think that we need to say that Jesus' victory is total. And I'll say this from 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus comes and creates and makes total victory, okay? But it doesn't look the way a lot of people think it might look. It does fit with everything we understand as meaning total victory. But in our world and in the way things are set up, we define that with extra junk attached to it, you know, Meaning like, oh, he's the, the meanest or the strongest. or so. it's, 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 it's so specific, but I could go through a list of things, but you know what I'm talking about. That what does Jesus' power look like that's the same as how we would define power, and what does Jesus' power look like or victory look like that's different than how our world typically defines it? That's what I want you to be thinking about. And the other thing is, a stru- so how Jesus defines victory and what that means to him, I would say it kind of... Uh, is more lot like, yeah, it's the most extreme example of what we would think of as humans, but it's almost like so much more extreme, it's different, okay? That would be a helpful thing. So one thing is understanding what his victory is like, which we'll get into as we look at this. The other thing is that Jesus having victory and giving this victory to us doesn't just mean we get what we want all the time. I think so many of us in America, especially, we want to follow Jesus because, yeah, that makes my life better. It's like, well, it does, in the most, again, in the most extreme categories that, where that kind of thing could make sense eternally, things of this nature. But when you boil it, when you come back down to like the nitty-gritty stuff we normally define better by, it doesn't always make any of that better. There's, there's a kind of a, I don't know if heresy is the right word, but there's this idea of this prosperity gospel that if you believe in Jesus, then everything's just going to work out right and you're going to be healthy all the time. That's just not true. And there's been a lot of money made off people telling people that. That's, it's like a half-truth. It's like a, so it becomes a lie. A half-truth might be worse than a real lie. That's not how following... Like, let me just read you this. John 16, 33. This is Jesus. Jesus talking. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. 
Because in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. You see, so the victory of Jesus allows us to take heart in spite of all the bad things. And there's going, he's like, there are going to be bad things. Sometimes God allows them. Sometimes God causes them. Sometimes, I don't know, you don't, even, it doesn't really, you don't always get to know. You know, we're so preoccupied with like, why is this happening to me? I don't know if we even always get to ask God that question fairly. I mean, that's not what I was going to talk about today, but, you know. So what I'm saying is Jesus' well, victory is so overwhelming that we almost have to set aside our, our, our kind of our conditioned or trained versions of what we think power and understanding are to let him redefine it. Then we can get on with things. And so what we see in this story, and what we're going to do is just go through this story. And I mean literally just go through it. I'm going to basically read it and just kind of point at things as we go along and let you think. Because here's the deal, guys. I can stand up here and preach all the time, and I like doing it. It's fine, and I will continue to do it. But, like, I, I mean, if proof is we have our house church group that meets, and we're going to relaunch these again soon. And if you're not in one, you need to get in one. We've been doing Zoom Bible studies and stuff, and they're great. And you need to do this because here's the deal. God can speak to and does speak to every single one of us if we let him. Not just me. I'm just the one up here right now. I'm going to guide you on this. But I feel like the best stuff in our house church discussions has come from not me people. (laughs) I'm like, man, that's awesome. (laughs) And I've stolen some of it and preached it here. And I told them I was going to do that. And I think I properly credited everybody. But here's here's the thing. God speaks to each and every one of you. And God will speak through each and every one of you. And so I'm just going to guide you through this and let God speak to you. But I'm going to give you some help because here's the deal. We're going to use the Bible as a tool to find out what Jesus is like. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we're going to go through this scripture, and God is going to use this this way. Far better than anything I could come up with to explain. Because we're in a complicated time. Complicated time with the church. Complicated time with the government. Complicated time with ourselves. The social media is junk. Oh, it's all junk in our heads. So let God's word cut through it. But here are some kind of guiding questions. As we read this, think to yourself, what does Jesus' strength look like? Look like? Like if you're standing there, what does it look like? Okay? I'm going to go on the record to say I think it's what strength is, and he is being strong. But what does it look like, okay? How does Jesus handle himself, especially when people are treating him poorly? How, do, how does Jesus treat other people? Does Jesus seem threatened? This is a big one. Just watch this whole time. Does Jesus ever seem threatened? I'm implying the answer is no. I think the answer is no. But does he seem threatened? And think of, would you seem threatened? You see? How do, uh, I already read that. No, how do, how do people treat Jesus? Do they treat him correctly? Do they treat Jesus, the Son of God, the way the Son of God deserves to be treated during this whole thing? Who is scared and threatened by Jesus? So here's Jesus. Who's threatened by him? Who's scared of him? And why? Why do you think they're threatened by him? How does all of this measure up to the world's standards of strength, power, and authority? How do you think you would have felt if you'd been there? 
This happened 2,000 years ago. What do you think you would have been like if you'd been standing there? And, now, and then at the end, what changes do you have to make based on what you've noticed? And so we're basically just going to read this story, and I'll, I'll pause with some commentary, okay? So we're just starting. I didn't put it in the computer, Brad, but if you want, it's just John 18 and 19, and y'all can just read along. John 18, 1. When Jesus had finished praying, he... So, sorry, i got to say one more thing. This mechanism is, is how Jesus is providing salvation to the world. This is why we have a cross on the wall here. This is not um, just a religious symbol of, okay, that means Jesus. This was actually a horrible torture device that Roman people used to torture people, bad criminal people, and they killed Jesus on it unfairly and wrongly. And somehow God used that action of humans, us, killing him to be saving to us. That's crazy. When we think about something like God being good and generous and all this, it's like that's, it's so far beyond these, you know, these little words. So as you look at this, this is not something right that's happening. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Yet, this is what happens. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him. So there's a first person. How do people treat Jesus? Judas is betraying him. Do we ever betray him? Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Does he seem threatened? Does he, he knows everything that's going to happen to him. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? And he knows the answer. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I am is a loaded word, and it's specifically included in this. This is God, this is Jesus giving himself the divine name, the same when Moses encounters God in the burning bush, and he says, I am sent me. And there's even apparently a tradition that when, when Moses told Pharaoh that I am sent me, that he fell back on the ground. Like, this is something that goes back, and this might even be a reference to that. But at the statement of him saying who he is, the power of God knocks these people to the ground. Does Jesus seem threatened? No. Again, he asked them, because they're on the ground. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, let these, other men, or let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And Simon Peter, like us, a follower of Jesus, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. How often do you think you and I step out to defend Jesus and take care of things? The man's just said who he is and people are thrown to the ground. And then when they finally collect themselves and get back up to arrest him, we think, oh, I, better, I better take care of business because God obviously can't take care of himself. And what ends up happening? We hurt people. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away, I'll 
shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He sees this situation, this wrong situation, this cruel and evil situation as something God is allowing. He's allowing himself to go through it for the sake, as he says, the joy set before him, which is the salvation and the restoration of all things, which includes us. But we think he can't handle it, and we need to go out, and all we do is hurt people. And one of the other Gospels, Jesus rebukes Peter right here. Then the, well, he kind of rebukes him here, but I mean, he really, it's like, you know, that's where the live by the sword bit comes from. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials, officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. How are they treating Jesus? And they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because the disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. So Peter snuck in now. He's not there. He's, you know, getting around. You aren't, you aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. How are people treating Jesus now? His friends, his followers. This is Peter, the rock I'm, that Jesus said he's going to build his church on. You're not one of his disciples, are you? I am not. It was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with him, warming himself. The high priest, okay, 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus says back, I have spoken openly to the world. Not in secret. He spoke openly. Jesus replied, I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way to answer the high priest, he demanded? How are people treating Jesus? Verse 23, Jesus says, If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, Testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? How does Jesus treat other people even when they're wrong to him? Certainly calling them out on the truth, but it's, you know. Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Small world. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. That's in there because Jesus told him he was going to deny him three times. And it did. He did. Verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. So now we got the religious leaders who were threatened by Jesus moving to the governmental leaders. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate, this is the Roman governor, came out to meet them and asked, What charges do you bring against this man? They say, or if, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. 
Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. I don't want anything to do with this. Like this Jesus thing, I don't want anything to do with it. You leave it alone, you know. Separation of church and state, whatever, you know. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. That's escalating. This took place to fulfill what Jesus said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is this your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate, am I I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? So now he's trying to figure out, I don't understand. Why is this even happening? Why am I even being involved? And he's been asked, are you a king of the Jews? King of the Jews is the Messiah. The the king of the Jews is the king of the world. Pilate doesn't know this. The prophets have told it. And so Jesus answers him the true answer. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everything Jesus just said is true, but it's beyond what the earthly ruler can understand. It's blowing his mind. He doesn't even understand. And it shows here, because Pilate, what is truth? Pilate retorted Pilate. He maybe doesn't even believe what truth is anymore. He doesn't even, you know, what, what are you, you know. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. That's the right answer. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews, a person he thinks is innocent? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is a bad guy. So, so he's thinking, all right, I'll get out of this easily. I'll just say, do you want me to let out this guy who obviously doesn't seem to have done anything wrong or this really, really bad guy that we all know is a horrible person because I'll obviously pick this guy, then goodbye, have a nice day. He's, getting, he's trying to get out of it. And they go, no, give us the bad guy. And he's like, Ugh. So now they got a bad guy who's actually released, which is going to do more bad stuff. And then he still has this Jesus situation he's got to deal with. Now we're in John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. This is a horrible whipping process. He's doing this because he's scared. He's like, well, maybe if I just beat this guy up a little bit, they'll leave me alone. And so to get out of a problem... This guy has Jesus, the Son of God, whipped and beaten. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and saying, Hail the King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Now, Jesus, the Messiah, the King of of the Jews, the King of the world, is being mocked as a king. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. The king of the world, the king of the Jews, the savior of mankind, God himself in flesh, 
is standing here whipped and being mocked by people. And somehow, in spite of all of this, it's rightly declaring who he is. This is the man. And it even references... It's referencing Adam. It's referring to Jesus as the second Adam. This is mankind. This is the restoration of mankind. This is in there. It's also language that they say about, like when they start having a king of Israel, they say this. It's a reference to that. So somehow, in this horrible situation of unfair being whipped, unfair being treated, mocked with a fake crown and a robe, and he stands in front of everyone, and he's being declared rightly. N.T. Wright says this in following Jesus. John has this unforgettable scene near the end when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, has him flogged and dressed him up in purple with a crown of thorns on his head. He brings him out before the crowd and says, Behold the man. And, now, and by now John's readers know what, it, what this means. This is the true man, the truly human being, the one who crown of thorns and all, truly reflects the image of the loving creator because he is the image of the loving creator. The wisdom of God, the word of God, the creative self-expression of God, the word became flesh, and he was crowned king in our midst. We beheld his glory, glory as of the human bleeding figure, the one given by the Father to save the world. And I said, like, how does Jesus' victory look compared to what we think in the world's victory and those kind of powers, religious powers, political powers, all these things. Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Crucifies the cross. They mean, hang him on this thing till he dies, because that's how Romans kill people. And he's like, I'm not doing it. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law. According to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, that's not true. He did claim to be the Son of God, but it's not against the law in any of the Hebrew Scriptures to claim that if you are God. It's, it's against it if you claim false gods and other things like that. But Jesus is side of truth. He didn't break the law. So they're actually lying here. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Who did I say? Who's afraid? Who's threatened here? Is Jesus? Or is it these other guys? It literally says here, they're afraid. Pilate was even more afraid, and he went back inside to the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? This is government power trying to threaten the king of the universe. Human government power trying to threaten that. How does Jesus respond? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus is saying, he's already said it. My kingdom is not of this world. This thing you you think you got me? I'm not threatened by this. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. That's the right thing to do. (laughs) He was like, oh, man, now I know who I'm dealing with. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Caesar's the emperor. 
the main guy. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. Now you got the religious leaders trying to push around the political leaders on the political leaders' terms. And here's the deal. It wasn't exactly, I mean, Rome was organized. It was, it was the empire. I mean, it was, it was important. They built roads. They did all kinds of stuff. But they didn't have the internet, and they didn't have telephones. So, like, when you were in charge of an area like this guy was, you got to keep that area going. And if you don't, and you get overthrown or something like that, well, if you get overthrown, you're probably dead, and that's bad for you. <laughs> but if there's trouble, financial trouble, economic trouble, you know, warring or un unrest or whatever, that reflects badly on you, and word gets back to the real leaders in Rome, that's not good, you see? So he's in this situation, I have to keep, Pilate, I mean, he's like, I have to keep things under control, or else my job, my life, all this is in He's threatened by losing all this sense of power he's got. These other religious leaders, these are Jewish leaders now. They believe in a Messiah will come. They believe in a king. They just don't think Jesus is it. So they're threatened by him being who he is. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king. Again, the right statement, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Because they think like the world thinks, like we sometimes think, that I could, I could probably get rid of Jesus. They think maybe if we kill him, he's gone, this whole thing's over. This threat to our situation is over. Let's just get rid of him. I think we think like that in our own lives all the time, or at least we've struggled with it. That song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. And here's the line that stuck out to me. We have no king but Caesar. These are religious leaders. They know they have a Messiah king. They don't even like Rome. Most of them want there to be a messianic king figure to come and th overthrow Roman rule in their land. And they have the audacity to say in the face of Jesus and all these other people, we have no king but Caesar. They sold out at the most extreme level. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And what happens next? You know, Jesus was put on the cross wrongly. And he still forgives. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he dies. Jesus, as God, dies on the cross. He's taken down and put in a tomb. And his followers don't know what's going on. What would you have been like if you'd been there? I thought this guy was God. He was healing people. Now he's dead. And then these other people think they've beaten him. Judas is driven crazy. But the veil in the temple is torn. When God had set up the temple, he's like, put this huge curtain between the place where my presence is and the rest of it. And there's a lot more to it than that. But there's this big curtain there. And, like, and don't go in there except for when I tell you to, because if you don't, you're going to die. Remember we said about not touching things a couple weeks ago? God's serious, loving, but serious. He puts this curtain there, and it's a sign of a separation. 
And it says, when Jesus died, at that moment there was an earthquake and the veil, the curtain tore. And it was a sign where God said, this separation isn't needed anymore. And the thing that people just didn't see coming, even though he told them, was on the Sunday following, Easter morning. This is why we celebrate Easter. Jesus came back. So he did die. And most of us will die. Maybe all of us will die. I don't, you know, but we don't have to be afraid of dying anymore because Jesus now gets the final word. And like what happened to him, sure he died. Sure the world will have tribulation. Sure we'll go through bad things. <laughs> but then he rises again at the end and they don't have anything to say about it. Is Kayla in here? Tell her to come up if wherever she, there she is. All right, she's coming. And so I want us—I want us to take a moment at the end. I don't know what God maybe spoke to you during this, because I think for each and every one of us, depending on where we are in our lives and our age, and what we've been reading online, what we've been encountering with our friends, it could be a myriad of things. Things stick out to me, but they might not be the same things that stick out to you. And so I want to give some space for us to reflect on what God, because I think the question I had at the end of what changes do I need to make based on what God has shown me? I want you to really think about that. Let God speak to you because there are changes we need to make. There's things we've been handling poorly because we've been feeling threatened. We're threatened by other people. We're threatened by things. And we we act a lot like the people in this story. Like Peter, we deny him. Like the religious leaders, we feel threatened. We're going to lose some sort of power. So we have to challenge him. And the whole time, Jesus, the one who's going around healing people and giving freedom to people, is the one that's threatening to people. And, here, and the thing is this. When Jesus says, I am here to testify the truth, people who are on the side of the truth understand me. They agree with me. I'm actually going to read exactly what it says because I think it's important because I believe that human culture never, never has has wanted to share the truth or to be on the side of truth. And hence, that's kind of why he's saying um, what he's saying here. Let me find this. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. This is a loaded statement you could probably write a PhD on or something, but what I think you need to hear today is this. In our world which is not built on a foundation of truth, it's built on a foundation of lies. And things like social media in various personal and intimate ways teach us to lie. Not totally lie, but lie. And I'm not saying you got to air all your dirty laundry all the time, but I'm just trying to say that we've been brought up and conditioned we're really good at lying all the time. And we think we can come to God the same way. That's why it matters. Because you think, oh, if I try to get my act together, then I will come to God and we'll be cool. And you think God's going to be fooled by that. And he's not. (laughs) And what in my experience I've learned is the level to which God will move in my life, because he'll move in everyone's life, is directly proportionate to the level at which I'm willing to be truthful about myself, about everything. 
because he's on the side of truth. He'll interact with you if you're a liar, just like he'll interact with them, and just like he did interact with them. But it's not going to be saving. It's not going to be the type of interaction you want to have. This is the victory that overcomes the world. I'm going to read that scripture one more time, and then I'm going to have Kayla sing. First John 5, 4-5. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now during this song, let the Lord speak to you. If you need to come to this altar up here, you need to come. There might be some things you need to lay down and leave behind. And if you're at home, if you need to kneel down, if you need to kneel down here, but let's take a moment. Let God speak. I've tried so hard to see it. Took me so long to believe it. That you choose someone like me to carry to go. 